Matthew chapter 13. Here in this chapter, Jesus provides eight parables in this Sermon on the Kingdom to explain the mysteries of God's kingdom. Those mysteries center around the fact that while the physical aspect of the God's kingdom on earth have been temporarily placed on hold, the spiritual aspect of that kingdom is still at hand. Jesus reveals this form of the kingdom, the spiritual form of the kingdom, and how it operates during the present age. Now, biblically, God has divided time into three ages or eons. We have the past age, we have the present age, and we have the future age. And it is within these ages that human history unfolds. From a divine perspective, human history is a household run by God in which he appoints people to be the stewards of his household. And the stewards have a responsibility to run the household according to the revelation of God that he has given to them. And when the stewards of the household fail, judgment follows. With judgment comes a change of stewardship. And the establishment of this stewardship is known as a dispensation. A dispensation. The Bible sets forth seven dispensations across the span of three ages. Theologically, each dispensation has been named for the overriding character of that stewardship. For example, in the past age, there were five dispensations. Innocence, conscience, government, promise, and law. And the revelation of these five dispensations is recorded in Genesis 1 through Acts chapter 1. In the present age, there's one dispensation. We call it the dispensation of the church. And the revelation of this dispensation is recorded in Genesis 2 through Revelation 20. And then in the future age, the age to come, we have one dispensation. And that is the dispensation of the kingdom. And the revealing of that dispensation is recorded in Revelation 20 through 22. So we can take everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the entire word of God, and see three ages and seven different dispensations in which God has revealed things to man, tested man, man has failed, and God has judged. Now the eight parables here in Matthew 13 specifically focus on the present age and a little bit on the future age. Now it's interesting when we get to the last sermon, the sermon uh, in Matthew 24 and 25, that sermon is going to deal with several more parables, and that's going to primarily focus on the future age and that dispensation of the kingdom. But here our primary focus is on the present age and the church dispensation, uh, the spiritual form of God's kingdom, if you will. We know that the present age, we know that the dispensation of the church is going to end in judgment, and that judgment is called the Great Tribulation. And once the Great Tribulation ends, we will then enter the future age and the kingdom dispensation will be initiated. At that time, the spiritual kingdom and the physical kingdom will merge together as one. Furthermore, these eight parables can be organized into four phases. 
In phase one, we have the inauguration of the kingdom. And that inauguration is given to us in two parables. In the, we have the sower and the soils, and we have the wheat and the weeds. You'll recall that in the sower and the soils, the spiritual kingdom is inaugurated by the preaching of the gospel. Literally, the planting of the gospel seed into the hearts of humanity. And we noted there that in this present age, there will be four responses to the gospel. There will be the unresponsive heart. There will be the superficial heart. There will be the worldly heart. And there will be the receptive heart. We also noted that in the wheat and weeds parable, that the spiritual kingdom is also inaugurated by planting the wheat, representing the church. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, A.D. 29. On that very day, the high priest waved the first bundle of wheat harvest before the Lord. And as this parable of the wheat and weeds reveals, wheat will not be the only seed planted in this present age. Satan, the enemy, is going to come along and he is going to plant weeds among the wheat. And these weeds are going to be indistinguishable from the wheat until the ears of grain or the fruit appear. In other words, Satan is going to insert what we call pseudo-believers or false believers into the church. But at the end of this age, Jesus is going to send forth his angels to gather the wheat to gather the church into the barn, into heaven, and he's going to cast the weeds, the pseudo-believers, into the furnace. That is hell. Now what is the end of the present age? I'll say it again, it is the great tribulation. Before the great tribulation begins, we will be raptured. That is, the church will be raptured into heaven. And then seven years later, at the end of the tribulation period, all pseudo-believers, every unregenerate person will be cast into hell. Now the phase two parable represents the opposition to the kingdom as demonstrated here in Matthew 13, 31 to 33. The mustard seed parable and the leaven parable. Now despite opposition, the kingdom is going to grow from a small, meager beginning into a large, magnificent organism. And here Jesus presents in Matthew 13, 31 to 33, the mustard seed, the leaven, and the kingdom. The mustard seed, the leaven, and the kingdom. And as we've done in previous studies on these parables, we're going to break this into two thoughts. We're going to begin with the presentation of the parable, and then we'll look at the interpretation of the parable. So let's begin in Matthew 13, 31 to 33 with the presentation of the mustard seed and leaven parables. The presentation of the mustard seed and the leaven parables. Now, as in verse 24, we're going to see that in both of these parables, Jesus introduces each with that formulaic phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. That verb is like, homoeao, means the kingdom of heaven may be compared. In other words, the kingdom of heaven shares similar characteristics with the mustard seed. It shares similar characteristics with the leaven. And here, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus compares the present state of the kingdom to a mustard seed. And in verse 33, he compares the current state of the kingdom to leaven. Let's look at verses 31 to 32. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. 
And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now notice again in the mustard seed parable, Jesus draws from the Galilean Agricultural Society. Mustard, sinope, refers specifically to black mustard. Black mustard, which grows wild on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Black mustard was harvested to flavor food and also for medicinal purposes. And though it is a garden herb, the mustard seed would not be sown in one's garden due to its invasive nature. Mustard seed will choke out every other plant in the garden. And so mustard seeds were planted in the fields, just with all the other crop field plants such as barley and wheat and so forth. Now Jesus states here that the mustard seed is smaller than all other seeds. Now immediately critics of scripture will jump here and claim that this statement from the lips of Jesus proves the scriptures are errant. That is, they'll say the scriptures have made an error. They will claim that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the region. Whereas the mustard seed is about an eighth of an inch long, the wild orchid seed is much smaller. And we must ask, was Jesus mistaken? Did Jesus make an error here? In short, no. Jesus is not mistaken. The mustard seed was the smallest seed amongst field crop seeds. Barley, wheat, lentils, and beans. So in that region, the mustard seed was the smallest field crop seed. He's comparing it to the barley seed, to the wheat seed, to the lentil seed, to the bean seeds. Also, now this is of interest, there is a common rabbinic expression of that day to denote how small something is by comparing it to a mustard seed, which tells us that the mustard seed was used to compare small things. No doubt Jesus is alluding to this rabbinic expression here in his parable. Next, Jesus says, When it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, the term garden plants, let's focus on that for a moment. It's the word lakanon. It means specifically herb or vegetable. So the mustard plant is in the herb or vegetable category, more specifically herbs. Now again, the scriptural critics will attempt to discredit Jesus' statement. They will claim, well, the mustard plant is really a bush and it's not a tree. Well, let's be clear here. Jesus is not teaching an agriculture or a biology lesson. He's presenting a parable which commonly involves some degree of hyperbole or exaggeration. Now on average, the black mustard plant grows to 6 to 8 feet high. In some cases, it can reach upwards of 15 feet high, meaning it grows taller than any other kind of herb or vegetable plant in that region. Okay? And you think about all their like tomato plants and pepper plants and so forth and how big, they, you know, three foot. We're talking 15 feet. So could we say, wow, that looks like a tree? Yeah. I mean, it'd be this, like this. A bee is not an insect. Or excuse me, a bug. But if I say that bee is a bug, look at that bug. 
Nobody's going to sit there in general conversation and correct me and say, well, actually, that, that's, not, that, 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 that's not a bug. A bug has a mouth that bites and devours. A bee is an insect because its mouth sucks. Okay? But, again, in general classification, we're not going to be that specific. We're just going to, oh, it's a bug. Same thing. It's 15 feet tall. It's a tree. Okay? The stem of the mustard plant is the thickness of an average man's arm. It looks like a tree. And it's thicker. The stem is thicker than all the other garden plants in the region. And then notice what he says. The mustard plant grows large enough that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now that verb nest, kataskaneo, only not only conveys the sense of nesting, but we could translate it, the birds of the air come and roost or perch in its branches. Now again, a bush 6 to 15 feet in height would certainly be ample room for a bird to roost or perch. Additionally, during certain times of the year, certain seasons, the branches of the black mustard plant harden and become less flexible, providing a solid foundation for a bird's nest. Let's move on to verse 33, and let's look at the leaven. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Here in Matthew 13, 33, we have the presentation of the leaven parable. And Jesus compares the present state of the kingdom to leaven. Now what is leaven? Zume. It's a yeast. It's a fermenting agent which causes bread to rise. Okay. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 and Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump or ferments the whole lump of dough. Now, leaven was usually a very small piece of fermented dough that would be kept in fermenting juices that would be taken then and added to the new lump of dough. According to Jesus, a woman took and hid the leaven in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Now, up to this point, the main character in every parable has been a man. But here it's a woman. Now let's remember that parables were usually crafted around everyday ordinary situations. And culturally, men farmed and women baked. And so the woman is the, is the main character here. She's baking this bread. But then it says she hid. And right away people get this idea that something nefarious has happened. The verb translated hid here, egcrypto, simply means this. To mix or knead leaven into the dough. There's nothing nefarious in her action. She was doing what every other woman does when she bakes bread. She mixes leaven into the flour. Now we have three pecks, three satan of flour. How much flour is that? 50 pounds. 50 pounds of dough would provide enough bread to feed over 100 people. That's a lot of bread she's making. And despite this large amount of dough, and here's the point, a little bit of leaven was able to leaven 50 pounds of dough. So we have the presentation of the mustard seed and leaven. Let's move on to the interpretation now of the mustard seed and the leaven parables. What is Jesus' point? 
Now it's interesting, neither Matthew nor the other gospel writers record an interpretation of these two parables. Obviously, the original readers, the disciples, would have understood just what Jesus was communicating. But for us as modern interpreters, we are not going to notice the interpretation. It's not going to be obvious to us. So it's necessary to interpret these parables, first and foremost in light of the culture of the first century A.D. Galileans, and secondly, according to their knowledge and understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures. We're going to see here in a moment that the Hebrew Scriptures present to us the interpretation for the mustard seed and the leaven parables. And that's why Jesus did not need to provide an interpretation. It's already there. Additionally, the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven are not fully scripted narratives. These are just very short, brief analogies teaching one central truth. And in both parables, the truth involves something small expanding into something more significant. In general, Jesus' point is that while the spiritual kingdom may start small, it's going to grow, it's going to expand into something more significant that is going to have an impact on the entire world. Let's begin with the mustard seed. The mustard seed. In the sower and soil's parable, the seed was the gospel. Then the seed represented the kingdom citizens in the wheat and weeds parable. Now in the mustard seed parable, this seed represents the spiritual kingdom, particularly the church. The man took and sowed the seed in his field. Who is planting? Who's planting the spiritual kingdom? Jesus. Jesus is the man. The field is the world. And notice, the man took and sowed seed in his field. The field belongs to Jesus. Now currently the world is under the authority of Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But his authority is stolen authority. The world ultimately belongs to God. And Jesus has planted his kingdom in this world. And despite the opposition from the enemy, like the mustard seed, the spiritual kingdom is going to be invasive. And it's ultimately going to grow. And it's going to choke out all other kingdoms. In other words, the spiritual kingdom is going to overcome all opposition. And just like the mustard seed, the spiritual kingdom will have a small beginning. Go back to the day of Pentecost in A.D. 29, when the church was born. Acts 1.15 says it began as a gathering of about 120 persons. By the end of the day, Acts 2.41 says, later that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now while 3,000 souls may seem like many people, it's a meager number in a city of over a million plus people. Additionally, consider the fact that the church started as an offshoot of Judaism. And Judaism represented less than a tenth of one percent of the world's population in the first century A.D. A mustard seed. A small, relatively unknown, insignificant commodity. But when that mustard seed is planted, it grows and becomes a tree. And similarly, the spiritual kingdom, the church, though it began small in number, it is going to grow into a large, encompassing kingdom. Jesus compares the kingdom to a tree and says, The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. 
Now I want you to notice if you're using the 95 update of the NASB that the translating team has gone and taken that statement and put it in capital letters. And when you see that in the 95 NASB update, that is to inform us that this is an Old Testament or a quote from the Hebrew Scriptures. So when Jesus is giving this parable, he draws a quote from the Hebrew Scriptures. The birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now I'm sure some of you have heard a popular opinion that's put out there, that's purported, that the birds of the air represent demonic or evil influence. Friends, I want to inform you, biblically, that is incorrect. But weren't the birds in the first parable Satan and the demonic forces? Yes, and that's clear because that's what Jesus says it is. But just because it represents something in parable one doesn't necessarily mean it holds to true here in this parable. In fact, in each of these three parables, the seed has had a different meaning. The seed was the gospel in parable one. The seed was the church in parable two. The seed is the kingdom in uh, uh, parable number three. And so, in each of these parables, the birds are different. Because when Jesus says the birds of the air come and nest in its branches, he is alluding to three prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures found in the books of Daniel and Ezekiel. And so if I want to know what the meaning of that phrase is, I need to go back to the original and see what it meant there. Because that's obvious what Jesus is referring to. So in Daniel chapter 4, we'll begin there. Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a great tree. Interesting. He's dreaming of a tree. He says in verse 12 of Daniel 4, The beast of the field found shade under the tree. The birds of the sky dwelt in the branches of the tree. And all living creatures fed themselves from the tree. He doesn't know what it means. He finds Daniel. And Daniel explains to him that the great tree is none other than Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. His kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, grows from a little seedling into a mighty tree that influences the entire known world. The beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and all the living creatures are references to the various kingdom, nations, and tribes that had been absorbed into the Babylonian kingdom were at the very least relied heavily upon it for prosperity and protection. Let's move to Ezekiel chapter 31. In Ezekiel 31, Yahweh appears to Ezekiel with a parable about Assyria. By the way, Ezekiel is filled with a host of parables. Okay. Now keep in mind, in Daniel 4, we have a tree. Starts as a seedling, grows into a mighty tree. The birds nest in its branches. This is sounding familiar. Ezekiel 31. We have a parable about Assyria. In the parable, he, Yahweh compares the Assyrian kingdom to a cedar tree. In verse 6, Yahweh says, All the birds of the heaven nested in its bough, and under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth, and all great nations lived under its shade. Just with, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tree, the tree represents the kingdom. The birds and the beast represent the nations of the world who were part of the Assyrian kingdom and found prosperity and protection from it or within it. And that's, again, look at the last part there of verse 6 in Ezekiel 31. All the great nations lived under its shade. The birds, the beast, or the nations of the world. 
Then we go to Ezekiel 17. And we're getting closer to what we, what's told to us here in Matthew. In Ezekiel 17, Yahweh commands Ezekiel to convey a series of parables in me, or messages in parable form to Israel. In the parable here, God refers to Babylon and Egypt as two eagles. Two eagles. And Israel was connected to both of those kingdoms during their history at various points. But neither Babylon nor Egypt provided Israel with protection or prosperity. And so as we move into chapter 17 of Ezekiel, specifically verse 22 and 23, Yahweh gives this parable. He says, I will also take a sprig, a sprout, from the lofty top of the cedar tree and set it out, set it apart. I will pluck it from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. Sound familiar, right? Yes. In this parable, Jesus, or excuse me, Yahweh just revealed, I am going to plant a sprig, I'm going to take a sprig, a sprout from a cedar tree, and I'm going to plant it atop a mountain. Now, in this parable, the cedar tree represents the kingdom of Israel. So we have a tree representing Babylon. We have a tree representing Assyria. We have a tree representing Israel. The twig or sprout represents specifically the Messiah and his kingdom. Remember, often in Isaiah, Jesus is referred to as what? The sprout that comes forth from the seed of Jesse or the seed of David. And so the mountain upon which he, that is the Messiah and his kingdom, will be planted is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This new tree or messianic kingdom is going to grow, it's going to spread its branches, and it's going to bear fruit. And in the parable, Yahweh says what? The birds will nest in the shade of its branches. So in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the Assyrian parable... The kingdom's represented by a tree. The birds represent the Gentile nations of the world. And more to the point, the messianic kingdom, because it is Jewish in its foundation, the birds nesting in its branches must be Gentile nations. Gentile nations are going to be absorbed into the messianic kingdom and find protection and prosperity there. Now, because Jesus gives us no interpretation of the mustard seed parable, the disciples then, as disciples today, must interpret this parable based on what is there. The fact that we have a direct quote from three exilic era prophecies about trees and birds should tell us to interpret this parable in the same light. The mustard seed that becomes a tree must represent a kingdom, and the birds must represent the Gentile nations. Notice Jesus does not change the interpretation of those parables. So the interpretation stands. The mustard seed that grows into the tree is the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the messianic kingdom. And the birds refer to the Gentile nations. Again, the church began with a small group of Jewish believers. A little sprig in AD 29. But you recall Jesus intended the gospel to go forth to the Gentiles as well. Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 15, Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation and make disciples of all nations. 
And in Acts 1.8, he, he explained how to spread the gospel seed. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth, to the Gentile nations. Now, if we take the book of Acts, we can break the book of Acts into three parts. Acts 1 through 7, the gospel is spread in Jerusalem. We see citywide evangelism and the church is inaugurated. In Acts chapter 8 through 12, Judah and Samaria take center stage. We now have nationwide evangelism and the church increased. And then in chapters 13 to 28, we see the gospel going to the remotest parts of the earth. We see worldwide evangelism and the church innumerable. By A.D. 60, 31 years after the gospel first went forth in Acts chapter 2, the gospel was being preached and local churches were being planted throughout the known world at the time. This amalgamation of Jews and Gentiles into one new body had been born and was growing. And some 2,000 years later, gospel preaching and church planting is still ongoing. And when Jesus returns at the end of the Great Tribulation, when He physically establishes God's kingdom on earth, this spiritual kingdom is going to merge into the physical. Jesus the Messiah is going to be the king. And the messianic kingdom will fulfill the prophecy foretold in Ezekiel 17 and here in Matthew 13 with the mustard seed. What started in seed form in AD 29 is going to one day overtake the kingdoms of this world. Daniel 7.27 says that when the Messiah establishes his kingdom on earth, quote, the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. All the dominions will serve and obey him. Revelation 11.15 goes on to say, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, friends, when Jesus returns at the end of this present age, he's going to establish his kingdom. Now, I want to take a moment in Daniel. He said the people of the saints of the highest are going to reign over this kingdom. Who are they? Us. The church. The church is going to reign with Christ over the world's kingdoms and nations and tribes. Just as there are people being ruled over today, so in that kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the physical kingdom of God on earth, the church is going to reign over all the nations of the world. We're going to grow into a tree. And the Gentile nations will find prosperity and protection within our branches. Now just who are the peoples over which we will reign? One group of people will be Israel. There will be a new national Israel comprised of all redeemed Jews of the past age. That's Genesis 1 to Acts 1. And those Jews saved during the tribulation. The other group of people will be Gentiles. You see, when Christ returns at the end of the great tribulation, there are going to be new Gentile nations formed. And they are going to be comprised of Gentiles of, those past age, of that past age who were redeemed, as well as any Gentile redeemed during the tribulation. And the church is going to reign over Israel and the Gentile nations. Seventy Gentile nations. Now, and so just as the mustard seed grew into a tree, the church is going to slowly grow into a mighty kingdom. 
Just as the birds found protection and prosperity in the branches of the mustard plant, so the Gentile nations will find the same in God's kingdom. The Messianic kingdom, God's kingdom, will comprise three groups of people, the church, Israel, and the Gentiles. And each of these groups will be comprised of followers of Jesus. Let's move to the leaven. Let's consider the leaven. Now if I say leaven, you immediately get a negative idea, negative picture in your mind. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 6, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Chapter 6 and verse 12 of Matthew, is, he clarifies, or Matthew 16, verse 12, he clarifies that he was not referring to the leaven of the bread, but to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, leaven is used here as a warning of false teaching. Just as a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, so a little false teaching will infiltrate the entire person. And the point is this, believer, beware of false teaching. Well, it's just a little thing. It's not that big of a deal. If it's a little bit of false teaching, it will thoroughly permeate your entire person. Okay? You cannot play with false teaching and expect not to be infected by it. Okay? It will spread through your entire being. Luke 12, 1, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here we have leaven as picturing hypocrisy, which will permeate into every area of one life. Again, believer, you and I, we need to be care that we don't dabble with hypocrisy. Listen, if you can be hypocritical in one small area of your life, it won't be long before you're a hypocrite in every area of your life. Let's think about the Passover and unleavened bread. Celebrated by Israel to remember the redemption from Egypt. When the people left Egypt on Passover, they left in such haste that the dough they, that they had baked and ate for the next seven days was unfermented. It was unleavened. And from that moment, leaven became a picture of sin, particularly at the time of Passover and unleavened bread. Before going to the cross to be crucified, Jesus infused new meaning into the Passover and unleavened bread. He declares that it now celebrates redemption from sin. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. His sacrifice redeems you and me from the curse of sin. It redeems us from the wrath of God. And Jesus is also not only Passover, He's the unleavened bread, He's the sinless one. And friend, when you and I receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we symbolically partook of his sacrifice. We symbolically partook of his sinlessness. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. Now, what's Paul doing? He's using leaven as a picture of sin and unleavened as sinlessness. Because Christ is your Passover, believer, you have a responsibility to live a sinless life before your Heavenly Father. But you know what? Until that day of redemption is made complete, we still struggle with sin, don't we? That's why Paul says in, next in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 8, Let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven. What's he talking about? What feast? Feast of Passover. Let's celebrate the feast of Passover, not with old leaven, not with sin, not with the leaven, the sin of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread, with sinlessness of sincerity and truth. So Paul uses leaven to typify sin's pervasive nature. Folks, 
Each and every time you and I partake of what we commonly call the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating the Feast of Passover. That's where it was initiated, out of the, in the midst of the Passover meal. And we are not to celebrate what we call the Lord's Supper with sin in our lives. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven: Do not eat the bread, do not drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. If you commemorate Christ, your Passover, your unleavened bread, while tolerating sin in your life, you are doing so, you are partaking in an unworthy manner. That's why Paul says in verse 28 of chapter 11, a man must examine himself. Every believer before partaking of the elements of that table needs to examine themselves. If you've got sin in your life, and hey, let's be honest, who doesn't? Every believer before partaking needs to examine themselves before a holy God and confess whatever sin, known or unknown, they may be tolerating in their life. Because as Paul goes on to say in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, those who partake of this table in an unworthy manner bring sickness and death upon themselves. That comes right out of the book of Leviticus, by the way. When God makes something holy, those who are unholy can't touch what is holy, lest they die. That's the principle. This table, the Lord's table, is holy. Those elements represent the holy God. And so to partake of something holy in an unholy state is to bring sickness and death into one's life. Sobering, isn't it? I challenge you, friends. Examine yourself. Look at your life. If you've got sin, confess it to the Lord. Forsake it. And then and only then may you be free to partake of the Lord's Supper when sin is repented. But leaven does not always have a negative picture. You see, in Jewish culture, leaven sometimes pictures love. You don't hear about that too often, do you? Leaven is a picture of love. Jewish mothers gift their daughters a small piece of leaven on their wedding day. And the young brides use that leaven to leaven the first lump of dough that they make for their family, their husband, eventually their children. And so by taking that lump from their former family, they're baking that love into their new bread and passing it on to their new family. Furthermore, leaven is not always a picture of sin in the Bible. If leaven is always a picture or type of sin, then what Jesus says here when he says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, if leaven here is sin, then he says God's kingdom is like sin. Mm -mm. We got a problem, don't we? Houston, we have a problem. Commentators the world around want to tell you that the leaven in the king here in this parable is the sin. But that can't be. Because if the kingdom of God is like sin, how can it be God's kingdom? Because God isn't sinful. His kingdom is holy. So we have to understand that leaven, while it can be referred to false teaching, while it can be hypocrisy, while it can be sin, it's not always a picture of the permeation of evil. Sometimes it means something altogether different, as it does here. Now on Passover, you could not eat leaven in your bread. But any other time of the year, you were allowed. Now, if the picture of leaven as sin was absolute, 
Would God allow his people to eat leavened bread throughout the year? Would he encourage them to eat leavened bread? Wouldn't if, if leaven is always a picture of sin, would that mean that God encourages people to live in sin the rest of the year, but not during the time of Passover? Well, that's totally ridiculous. Absolutely. God would never encourage his people to engage in sin. Furthermore, let's go to Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 13. In Leviticus 7 verse 13, when an Israelite brought a sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving, he was to present his offering with the cakes of what? Leavened bread. That's right, I'll say it again. Leavened bread. If leaven is inherently evil, why would God require leaven in the, as part of the peace offering? Let's go to Leviticus 23 and verse 17. On the day of Pentecost, each person was to bring with them from their dwelling place two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two tenths of an ephah and they shall be a fine flour baked with what? Leaven as first fruits to the Lord. I want you to take a moment. Let's contemplate this. Let's contemplate the magnitude of this Pentecost offering. Pentecost, face to first fruits. The priest waved the first bundle of wheat, signifying the wheat harvest belonged to God, guaranteeing its future. On that same day, every person was to bring with them two loaves of bread to the temple. And that bread was to be made with fine flour, baked with leaven. Now let's think, it's Pentecost, it's the wheat harvest. What kind of wheat, or what kind of flour are they using? Wheat flour. And they're baking it with what? Leaven. Each person presented two leavened loaves of wheat bread before the Lord. Remember, barley represents Israel. Wheat represents the church. Barley's harvested at Passover. They eat unleavened bread, but wheat is harvested at Pentecost, and the bread associated with Pentecost is leavened wheat bread. And what does Jesus say here? The kingdom is compared to leaven which a woman took and mixed into three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. And what is he referring to? He's referring to the custom of preparing two loaves of leavened wheat bread to be offered at Pentecost. Is it any surprise that the church is an amalgamation of two people groups, two loaves of bread, wheat bread, Jews and Gentiles? Jesus uses leaven here then to picture the spiritual aspect of the kingdom, the church. Leaven here has a positive meaning. Now, if the leaven represents the spiritual kingdom, the church, and the dough represents the world, and the leaven is comparatively small in respect to the dough, 50 pounds of dough, so the spiritual kingdom is relatively small to the world. We're going to face great opposition. Nevertheless, like leaven, we have a responsibility to permeate the world with the gospel. Now, in order for the leaven to be effective, it has to be kneaded into the dough. We have to be inserted into the world. And understand, we're not going to be, the world is not going to perceive the effects the church is having upon it. Luke 17, 20 and 21, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor is anyone going to say, oh, look, here it is, or there it is, but the kingdom of God is in your midst. Listen, the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, the church, is present, but the world doesn't perceive it. In fact, often it overlooks it, opposes it, and sometimes even oppresses it. 
Nonetheless, the kingdom, the church, is going to grow and increase until it permeates the world. Now what of the woman? Who in the world does the woman represent? Well, sower in the soil, the sower is Jesus and the disciples. Wheat and weeds, the landover is Jesus, the servants are the redeemed, the enemy is Satan, the reapers are the angels. In the mustard seed, Jesus is the man. The leaven parable, the woman represents the Holy Spirit. What? How is it possible that the Holy Spirit is typified by a woman? Well, let's establish some facts. Number one, God is neither biologically male or female. John 4, 24, God is a spirit. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. God does not have biological sex. He is neither male nor female. Sorry to disappoint all the progressives. Second, God created humanity in his image and likeness. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We've got two statements. One, we're made in his image. Two, he made male and female. So when God created humanity, he created humanity, biological males and biological females. That's it. Only two. Two biological types, male and female. And then he assigned gender roles to the man and gender roles to the woman. It is those gender roles that represent God's image and likeness. We're made in his image and likeness. Follow with me. We're not going to go through all the scriptures. I'll include them when you get your, uh, if you want to get a copy, a written copy of the sermon here. But throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God is pictured as a father, as a warrior, as a husband, as a king. But in those same Hebrew scriptures, God is pictured as a pregnant woman with child, as a woman crying out in labor, as a woman giving birth, as a woman nursing, as a woman carrying a child, as a woman comforting a child. So we have God in the Hebrew scriptures typified as a man and a woman from a gender perspective. And so men and women together represent the Godhead, don't they? You see, the first and second persons of the Godhead, who we acknowledge as the Father and Son, when we go through the Hebrew scriptures and we see those male-associated gender roles, father, warrior, husband, etc., they're, they're representing for us God the Father or God the Son. But in those other Hebrew scriptures, typifying God from a female perspective, from the gender associated with a woman, pregnant with child, so on and so forth, it's the Holy Spirit. Again, God is not biological male or female. He's a light and he's spirit. But the Godhead, the members of the Godhead, perform various functions associated with human male and female gender roles. Based on those two reasons, it's not unreasonable for the woman here to be the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised in Acts 1.8, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Ten days later, day of Pentecost, Acts 2.4, what happened? They were all indwelled with the Holy Spirit. From that day forward, the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers every believer. In doing so, the church grows in this world. How? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, that large amount of leaven. Large amount of leaven dough prepared by the woman illustrates that just as a little 
leaven permeates an entire lump. So this little morsel that we presently have of the kingdom is going to permeate the world with the gospel by the end of the present age. Today, some 2,000 years later, we're still permeating the world. And when Jesus returns to establish his physical kingdom on earth, the spiritual kingdom will then thoroughly permeate the entire world. When he establishes his kingdom, it will be comprised of the redeemed, a redeemed church, a redeemed Israel, and redeemed Gentile nations. I want to close with the words of Bruce Barton regarding the parable in 11. He confirms this truth. Quote, It is normal for the church to be small, struggling, and simple. I'll say that again. It is normal for the church to be small, struggling, and simple. You see, based on these two parables, the church is currently kicking against the pricks. You see, today, we think as the church, it needs to be significant. We want the church to be successful. We want the church to be sophisticated. That's not what God's plan was. God's plan right now is for the church to be insignificant. God's plan for the church is to be hidden in the dough. But at this church moment, the church is to be permeating and invading the world. Not by force, not by public policy, but subtly as mustard seeds hidden in a field and leaven hidden in the dough. Oh, but pastor, it looks like the church is ineffective. My friends, if you believe the scripture, the church is not ineffective. Leaven hidden in the dough. Can't be seen. But eventually the permeating effects will. The spiritual kingdom embodied presently in the church is going to overcome all opposition. As Matthew 16, 18 says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. The church is going to grow despite what the world does. Satan is going to be defeated and Jesus is going to reign. My question for you is, are you going to reign with him? Are you going to be the mustard seed? Are you going to be the leaven? Or are you just a lump of dough? Who will you be? Let's pray. Father, we come before you through your Son, Jesus. We praise you, Father, for your divine wisdom, for your plan for the kingdom as revealed in these parables. We praise you that your plans are eternal and cannot be overcome. All you have deemed will come to pass. Praise you, Father. We confess that too often we're discouraged. We look around at the present state of the world. We look at what we consider the present state of the church. And we're discouraged and disgusted. We confess that there's times we've thrown, up, thrown in the town. We've given up. We confess that we've acted as if the church has failed. Father God, forgive us. All we're simply seeing, Lord, is your plan play out. We're seeing slowly wheat and tares, wheat and weeds being distinguished. But Father, what appears to be a failure on to us is indeed the true, genuine church growing in the field, slowly invading, slowly permeating until that great and glorious day when it overtakes the world and when the kingdoms of the world will be redeemed and brought into its branches. I praise you, Father. That the true church is not ineffective. I praise you that your kingdom is coming. I praise you that your son will reign. Indeed that day will be glorious. And so Father I pray that we would continue to give you all praise. And all the glory. Until the kingdom comes. Amen.